How's everyone doing? Yeah. That's right. I've always wanted to speak to my own soundtrack. Give it up to Jerry. This is like a dream come true. All right. So if I say any zingers, if I make any brilliant insights, I'm relying on you. Just a... Oh, there you go. Uh, I'm honored to help kick off the annual Revolutionary Love Conference right here in the spiritual heart of New York City, Middle Church, led by the indefatigable Reverend Jackie Lewis, a woman, yes, a woman I would never, ever, ever dare piss off in life, ever, and I hope to always remain on her Christian charitable side. Are we, are we good? We're good. All right, we're good. When Reverend Lewis calls you up in the summer and says, uh, hey, you're speaking at my conference. There's only two responses. Yes, and when? Uh, and then I literally said yes, and when? And then after I said yes, then I went on the internet and said, oh, okay, this looks good. Uh, so I'm really glad I'm here. That's what I want to say. It's my first time. Only in America can a black female reverend ask a caramel mocha skin son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants who is not an imam or a religious scholar, but instead a dude who wears makeup on TV and write some opinions on the internet to speak on the politics of faith and the competing visions of America's future. <laughs> to some, this is a sign of the American dream. This is where you say hallelujah. hallelujah. As we say, Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Not bad, pretty good, two points. Uh, to others, I just described the American nightmare, and you could say, oh, hell no, or as we say, astaghfirullah. <laughs> Don't say that. Two competing visions of America, of what it is and what it should be. But either way, God bless America, or as we say, God bless America. Obviously, I'm the, it's going to be like this for the next 40 minutes, by the way, so for better or worse, you're stuck with me for 40 minutes. I'm the ideal choice to kick off such an important conference in front of such august company. In fact, I was so ideal that Reverend Lewis straight up told me I wasn't even her first choice. She asked me after inviting the following people, Reza Aslan, Riz Ahmed, Hassan Minaj, Fareed Zakaria, Sanjay Gupta, Mindy Kaling, and the brown dude who won the Spelling Bee co uh, competition on ESPN, all right? <laughs> after all of them said no, then she turned to me. So I'm honored to be here as your desperate last pick, eighth choice brown Muslim speaker for today's conference. I yeah, thank you for the pity applause. I will take all the pity applause I can get. Uh, now, first, I hope you're not bored by my talk. I, I mean it. Uh, I'm in a house of worship. I'm a person of faith. And I believe that it is a sin in all religions to bore an audience. Yes? I believe there is a verse in the Bible in Corinthians, Verily thou shalt boreth an audience, or thou shalt endeth in hell. Is that a verse? In, I read it in a Bible signed by Donald Trump. Is one of those Bibles. Too soon? Too soon? or not soon enough. Um, it's gonna be like this for the next 35 minutes. She's, the regret on her face, she's like, should've invited the spelling bee guy. Um, he could have spelled, he could have spelled regret. Secondly, my talk, thank you for that, thank you. My talk or my analysis or my words about the competing visions of America are exactly that, my words. My story, one story, one perspective, one framework, one lens of the millions that see and view and are seen and viewed differently in this evolving, messy, rough draft of a country that we call the United States of America. I believe in America. America has made my fortune, and I raised my daughter in the American fashion. Where, what movie is that from, anyone? 
Those are the opening lines from The Godfather. One of the greatest movies ever made, and if you have not seen The Godfather, you have failed in life and committed a sin. And this is a house of worship and a tone immediately. That was the opening line spoken by the Italian-American funeral par parlor owner, Amerigo Bonacera. Uh, and it's, a, it's a really, it's an important line. It, it, it encapsulates, if you will, the American dream for so many, so many immigrants. To this day, believe it or not, around the world, people still believe in America. America is the enduring dream, the streets paved with gold, where anyone who works hard enough, regardless of their background or identity, can make it and emerge as the protagonist of this narrative, as long as they pull themselves up from the bootstrap and use merit. To others, America has been an enduring nightmare, where the streets are not paved with gold, but paved with blood, their blood, where those born with the wrong skin color, the wrong last name, the wrong gender, the wrong religion, the wrong zip code, the wrong sexuality, might make it only after they've been stomped by those with boots. And if they survive, maybe some will emerge, but they will with a lot of scars. At most, they will be the villains. Some might be the heroes, but often there are the sidekicks, the stereotypes, the footnotes, the Morlocks, the tethered of America, the unseen, the forgotten. They're the ones who make the beds which are soiled, literally and figuratively, by the rest of us, who drive the cars, who tend the gardens, who work and toil and never get a speaking part, despite all their merit. They fade into the background, or they are deported. And both those visions, perspectives, stories of America are real, and they have existed side by side, often overlapping since the beginning of this country. As for my story, I'm a dude named Wajahat Ali, and believe it or not, in 2019 America, there's still not a keychain with my name on it. Even after you guys voted for my Muslim brother Barack twice, still not a keychain. <laughs> Secrets out. Thank you, liberals. He's a brother. Uh, I am the son of two Muslim Pakistani immigrants, Zulfiqar Ali and Samina Ali. Thanks to the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, my father, then a young man, a student with sideburns in bell bottoms, came with his older brother, crossed the Atlantic, said a drive-by salam to the Statue of Liberty, and landed right here in America, where he wanted to taste the American dream with garam masala and some chutney. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 lifted the restrictive and racist quotas that were placed on foreign nationals in the 1921 Emergency Quota Act. That act, which responded to an emergency that did not exist, sound familiar? Was passed to basically ban all foreign nationals from Asia and set quotas for mostly Eastern European Jews and Irish Catholics. Because back in the day, they were seen as the invaders. Their caravan was coming to replace all of us and subordinate the rest of us. The Trump administration are not original thinkers. However, if in 1924 I told you fast forward and take the DeLorean to 2019 and eight of the nine Supreme Court justices were Catholics and Jews, you'd be like, get the F out of here. That's the beginning of a bad joke or that's a hysterical science fiction short story. Fast forward to 2019 and karma is named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I digress. My parents came. Then they brought my grandparents through chain migration, also known as family reunification, which, by the way, is how Melania Trump brought her uh, parents recently. But that's okay, because her parents didn't come from a shithole country. They, came from, uh, they didn't come from shithouse countries. They didn't come from Mexican countries in Central America. Thank you. 
thank you. They didn't come from African countries, they didn't come from Haiti, they came from a European country. And facts matter, uh, the two Republicans who were in the room when Donald Trump literally said, or allegedly said, uh, we don't want people coming from shithole countries, they said, no, 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 he said shithouse countries. Because there's a difference between shithole and shithouse, apparently one has Wi-Fi. And <laughs> it's gonna be like this for the next 30 minutes. You and me together, on the road. But he did say, people forget the second part. He said, why can't they come from countries like Norway? Now, I've been to Norway. I, I love Norway. Some of my best friends are the Norwegians. <laughs> I love the moderate Norwegians. I was the darkest thing in Norway. Norway is so white, my teeth were white for six months after coming to Norway, right? Coming back from Norway. So just to let you know that the President of the United States of America is fine with people coming from countries like Norway, but not from the shithole slash shithouse countries. I don't know where Pakistan was. I'm assuming it's not part of the Norway, Norwegian countries. All right, but like most immigrants, my parents came, my grandparents came, and they integrated. They did not assimilate, they integrated. Because really, who wants to melt into anything? I don't want to be in a pot, and I don't want to melt. I like my human form. I like being a solid substance. So. My grandmother, born and raised in India, who came here in her 50s, swear to God, taught my mother how to make biryani in an American kitchen while wearing bell-bottoms and listening to the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> All right? True story. My father, who came here as a young student in his early 20s, brought with him his Nusrat Fateh Ali records and also Jimi Hendrix records. Eventually, eventually, they moderated and learned to tolerate turkey and actually had turkey during Thanksgiving. And, but to this day, 2019, my mother says, I don't understand. Why do white people like this dry bird? Why? But they still integrated. She doesn't get it. She goes, can't we just have chicken? Why, Wajahat? And I'm like, just do it. Be an American. And finally, in our American house, we have turkey next to khima, next to chicken tikka masala, next to chai. The American dream. Eventually, they had me, their only child, in 1980. And in order for me to blend in, they decided to name me Wajahat the most mainstream name of all time. In addition, they decided not to teach me English because who needs English growing up in the Bay Area, California in 1980? I'm telling you, they did not assimilate, they integrated. In fact, the true story is when I went to school, Child's Hideaway Preschool, they dropped me off, I only knew three phrases or words of English. The first word was shut up, because my mother used to say shut up. The second word was idiot, because my mother used to say shut up, idiot. True story. And if those grew up in the 80s, you guys remember the, uh, the commercial, the uh-oh SpaghettiO commercials? Yeah, so I used to say uh-oh PasGuerrero because I was a fob kid. So shut up, idiot, uh-oh PasGuerrero. The only Desi and Muslim kid in Charles Hathaway preschool. I was also very healthy, which is a way of saying I was also uh, very big boned, which is also a way of saying I was very mashallah, which is also, a I was fat, all right? I was fat. I was, thank you, thank you for that. I was so fat, and this is where you have to ask, how fat were you? Uh, thank you. I was so fat that the only pants I could wear were husky pants. Who here? Well, there you go. One, two, three, four. Give me more. There has to be more. Five, six. There you go. It's a safe space. Seven, eight. Can I get ten? Can I get ten? Nine, nine. Look at that. That one guy's like me, me. Oh, my God. He's crying. The trauma's coming back. He goes, I repressed it, man. The pain, the memories. You and I, you see, that was the quickest hand up and hand down I've ever seen in my life. You and I remember Husky Pants were located at the end of Mervyn's. 
there was a section called Husky, and literally Husky pants were so demeaning, on their entire right butt cheek, the shank of your butt, in Times New Roman 90 font, it said Husky. You could see it from space, all right? So I was fat, mashallah healthy, wearing Husky pants, who couldn't speak English, brown, sweating profusely. I was sick, I was left-handed. If anyone knows anything about Asian cultures, there you go. You only do one thing with the left hand. You know what I'm talking about. I'm gonna call you out. You know what I'm talking about. I was left, I was so awkward. I, uh, let's just have fun. I was so awkward, and my parents who did not assimilate, they wanted to convert me, so my mom used to hold my left hand behind my back, and my grandmother used to throw tennis balls at me, thinking I would convert to right-handedness. My wasif chacha, who was a doctor, came in one day and saw tennis balls bouncing off my belly, and literally he's like, let it go, let it go. He's left-handed. So, basically what I was saying is I was a winner. I was a winner at life. And yet, despite all this, I ended up graduating from UC Berkeley with an English major, and I went to law school, became a licensed attorney, and I ended up marrying the varsity high school cheerleader who is a brilliant doctor. Hashtag, it gets better. I love America. This is a great country. America is where I made my fortune. It's gonna be like this for the next 25 minutes. Are we good? Is there regret there on that face? No, she's happy. But I was also the token Muslim and the token brown dude. No one else looked like me at school. And from the early age of wearing husky pants, I became the cultural ambassador of 1.7 billion people and 1,400 years of Islamic civilization. On the drop of the dime, I still have to be an expert on the following. Islam, the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad, Iran, Iraq, the Iron Sheikh, Hamas, Hamas, Halal Meat, the Halal Guys, Sharia, Chicken Tikka Masala, Salman Khan of the Khan Academy, Salman Khan, the Bollywood actor, and everything in between. But thankfully, I love telling stories. And the first time I ever told the story was in fifth grade. This movie came out called Robin Hood. You guys remember that? Kevin Costner with a British accent, even though he didn't have a British accent, right? Remember that? But we saw the movie, I was nine years old. Kevin Costner's sidekick, his friend was Morgan Freeman. And Morgan Freeman was a Moor. He was a Muslim named Aziz, and he was a badass. And all of us were like, oh my God there's a Muslim badass on screen. This is amazing. He prays in a way no Muslim ever has. It's okay, we'll give him a pass. This is the greatest thing we've ever seen. And I was sick and I was fat and I was shy and never spoke up in class. And Miss Peterson from Kentucky made us do creative projects and she made us write a short story and said everyone has to write an original one-page short story. I wrote a 10-page story, Wajahat Ali's rendition of Robin Hood. She gave me an A++ and said, for the first time ever, you have to recite the story in front of your fifth grade homeroom. And I said, I'm fat, please don't make me. She goes, do it, fatty. And I got up and I read it. And for the first time ever, my peers who mocked me gave me respect. Then she said, the sixth grade, seventh grade talent show's coming up in two weeks. Why don't you go as the young guy and represent and share your story? And I said, I'm fat, no. She goes, do it. And I went and I did it. And for the first time in my life, I had him. For the first time ever, after 10 minutes, they applauded. And I discovered my secret superpower. There is a power in telling and sharing stories. Afterwards, I went to an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school, Bellarmine, because of course, because of course. And who here has gone to an all-boys or all-girls Catholic school? All right, all right. We all know, like, secretly, but not so secretly, they kind of want to convert you and, like, make you into a priest, right? So every semester, there used to be, like, Religious studies, Bible as literature, social justice. And who got the highest grade 
every semester in religious classes with Jahatali, the token Muslim. And Father Allender used to read the, the grades and his heart, his Jesuit heart just cracked each time. He goes, <laughs> highest grade, Wajatali, second highest grade, Kalyan Neelam Raju, the Hindu, third highest grade, Navid Mustafavi, the lapsed Persian. And there was just like tears, tears came down. <laughs> but I love that Jesuit education because the motto was men for others. Men for others. Faith through action. And I encountered for the first time Christian Jesus in the Bible, and I read the stories. And I said, the stories of the prophets are like the stories of the prophets in the Quran. Jesus is like our Isa. Isa is Arabic for Jesus. Born to a Virgin Mary who taught compassion and love. And it was through the stories and through the service of faith through action that I became a better Muslim while going to an all-boys Jesuit Catholic high school. God bless America. Hallelujah. Allahu Akbar. Speaking of stories, though, there's a great quote. The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. I'll repeat that. The universe is made of stories, not of atoms. That is from a 20th century Jewish-American poet, Muriel Rukeyser. Human beings, science says, are the unique storytelling animals in existence. We understand and communicate everything through stories. Our religions, our morals, our values, our histories, our families through stories. There's a famous saying in corporate America, no story, no sale. America is also made of many different stories, oftentimes competing stories. But if you aren't writing your story, and this might be the only profound thing I say today, if you aren't writing your story, your story is always being written for you by others. And if you aren't telling your story, your story is always being told to you by others. And for many Americans, they are not the protagonists of the 2019 American narrative. They are the rapists, the criminals, the caravan, the horde, the invaders, the sons of bitches, the enemies of the American people, the fake news, the terrorists. They are to be banned from serving in the military, banned from entering this country, separated from their family, and put in tender care facilities at the border. They are the other. And there is no room or space in our hearts or lands or imaginations or visions or narratives to accommodate them. I remember when 9-11 happened, unfortunately. When 9-11 happened, my personal story had a little plot twist. Overnight, anyone who looked Muslimy, not just Muslims, this is important, anyone who looked Muslimy, Sikhs, Hindus, Arab American Christians, anyone who looked Muslimy was deemed a suspect interrogated, indicted, convicted, and sentenced by a nameless judge, jury, and executioner who still to this day holds our loyalty as suspect and asks questions like, where are the moderate Muslims? And how come Islam hates the West? And the whole time I've been asking myself, who is Islam and who is the West and how come I've never met either of them? And isn't that really a simplistic story? Islam versus the West, West versus Islam. Can we get a full report, not just the bar summary? Too soon? My bad. Thank you. Too soon. And a question emerged and still emerges in my mind from time to time. If you have the choice, is it better to be the villain or is it better to be invisible? As a minority in America, you learn early in life you have to be welcoming even when you aren't welcomed. You have to daft punk it through life. You have to do everything harder, better, faster, stronger, smarter. You have to be a walking Wikipedia. 
you have to exert the extra effort, the extra time to always explain or defend yourself. It is exhausting always being the fireman or the token or the Wikipedia entry. And it shouldn't be that way, but it often is. But I'm going to make the case that the extra work is worth it. It's worth it. There is a return on that investment. And that return, inshallah, God willing, will create a better, healthier vision and narrative for this country that can and should and will, inshallah, accommodate many new protagonists who have always been here on the margins. Inshallah. But today is a moment of urgency. It's a matter of survival for many of our communities, and I'm not a melodramatic person. It is a moment of urgency. My story and my family's story of success, right? Successful story. The kid grew up, married the high school cheerleader, became an attorney, writes for the New York Times, you know, eats with his right hand, writes with his left hand. Um, it's a success. It's an American success. It is the inevitable, intended, positive consequence of the American experiment. It is the vision of what America can and should be. But to others, the story I just told you, is its unintended failure of the American experiment. It is a vision of extinction, of doom, of the demographic time bomb, of Muslims and immigrants and people of color and gays taking over and replacing the rightful protagonists who inherited power and the lead role with the best speaking parts as a birthright. My alleged success is a sign of their failure. My seat at the table means I took away their seat at the table. It's a zero-sum game. Absolutist, all or nothing, us versus them. And every single sober study, academic study, done in the three years about the 2016 election has finally showed and revealed what all of us were saying, especially the people of color who are journalists who covered the administration, that it wasn't primarily economic anxiety that drove Trump's base. It was primarily, not exclusively, racial anxiety. A fear that white America was the real victim and being left behind, held hostage by political correctness and losing out to diversity. Make America great again. To many means, taking that DeLorean back to the 1950s where everything was simple and TV was black and white and Leave it to Beaver didn't have premarital sex and they didn't have to talk to a Latino or a black neighbor or you know, eat halal chicken and they didn't have to worry about gender pronouns. And those were the good old days, simpler times when white was right and white supremacy was never interrogated or questioned or challenged. It simply was the default operating mode and vision and color of America. And briefly, I would like to honor Reverend Lewis. She asked me to talk about this in the context of what happened in New Zealand. Uh, and, and props to Genesis uh, for bringing this up. I, I, just, I was listening to her speech. I was just like, she just said, and one. Thank you for an inv invitation. I'm done. <laughs> like, it, was a, it was a great prayer. We did, not, we did not sync up before this, right? Yeah. Uh, on March 15th, during Juma prayer, which is Friday prayer, and for those of you who don't know, Friday prayer is like our version of Sunday Mass. It's where the entire community, community comes together in the early afternoon to come and pray, all right? So on March 15th, during Juma prayer in Christchurch, New Zealand, a 20-year-old white supremacist decided to enter two mosques and shoot and kill 50 people, including a three-year-old baby. He put a camera on the top of his head, decided to live stream it, and like a Call of Duty video game, went in with his assault rifle and shot and indiscriminately killed 50 people. He left behind a 78-page manifesto called The Great Replacement, which cited also Dylan Roof, who in 2015 walked into a church 
and killed nearly a dozen black worshipers, a white supremacist who was radicalized online. He also name-checked the Quebec shooter who three years ago, two years ago, walked into a Quebec mosque and killed six people. He also name-checked Anders Breivik, who in 2011 left behind a 1,500-page manifesto explaining why he killed 76 people. He left behind a bomb in a federal building that killed eight, and then he dressed up as a policeman, entered into a, an island, and killed mostly teenagers, shot and killed about 69 teenagers. He said he was doing it to save Europe and to punish Europe for its stance on immigration and multiculturalism and Muslims. He also said, this is the New Zealand shooter, that he wanted to protect against the invasion, the invaders, the Muslim horde. It's been nearly two and a half weeks, three weeks. Donald Trump has yet to call it an act of terror. The day after the shooting, Donald Trump ended up repeating the same talking point, talking about invasion coming at the border. Speaking about Donald Trump, the shooter also mentioned Donald Trump, and he said that, quote, Donald Trump to him represents a symbol of renewed, excuse me, I'm going to say this again. Donald Trump to him represents, quote, a symbol of renewed white identity. And he shares, quote, a common purpose with Donald Trump. What could a domestic, excuse me, a terrorist, an international terrorist who shoots and kills 50 people, how can he share a common purpose with the president of the United States of America? Let's take the DeLorean to October, right before the midterms. Donald Trump is sitting on a bullish economy that he has inherited from Barack Hussein Obama. Yes, you can say it again. Who helped save the economy after George W. Bush ruined it. I'm old enough to remember. There was job growth. If I was uh, trying to get Republicans to win seats, I would run on that. Seems like a slam dunk. Donald Trump doubles down, triples down on one talking point. The caravan is coming. Rapists, MS-13, Mexicans, criminals, Middle Eastern suspects who might have left their prayer rugs at the border are coming to invade. It is a horde. They're taking over our culture. Sound familiar? Around this time in Pittsburgh, Robert Bauer walked into the Tree of Life synagogue and shot and killed 11 worshipers. On a social media profile, he retweets a post of another white supremacist who says, we have to punish the filthy evil Jews for bringing in the filthy evil Muslims. Robert Bowers says, I don't care about the optics. I'm going in. I'm going to get them before they get us. I'm going to punish those who are bringing in these invaders. You guys still with me? Donald Trump, around the same time, decides to retweet and mainstream a white supremacist conspiracy theory saying that George Soros, a Jewish-American-Hungarian billionaire, is helping fund the caravan. That conspiracy theory is the white supremacist conspiracy theory of the Great Replacement, which is the manifesto done by the shooter who walked into the New Zealand mosque and killed 50 people. The Great Replacement says that Jews are at the head of a cabal, an international conspiracy, using the savages, blacks, immigrants, and Muslims, to invade and overpopulate European lands and to eventually subordinate them. So who is repeating and mainstreaming a white supremacist conspiracy theory from their Twitter account? Donald Trump. This is an ideology of supremacy and hate that has now been mainstreamed by elected officials 
in media personalities. It is a global ideology of hate which has a deep infrastructure online, which uses to recruit people, promote their talking points, to target people, and to radicalize. This is what we're facing. It doesn't matter if they're the alt-right, white supremacists, white nationalists, people like Steve King, nine-term congressman in Iowa, who says openly on Twitter, we cannot, save our, uh, we cannot replace our civilization with their babies. That's Steve King, nine-term congressman. They all share a com common ideology of hate, which is white supremacy. This is what we're dealing with. And so we have several competing visions of America. But right now, we are also witnessing the death rattle of white supremacy. And the death rattle of white supremacy in America and Europe is creating a death march. And they're playing for all the marbles. And they're coming for all of us. Our success, it doesn't matter. It's like, oh, they'll come after the blacks. Oh, they'll just come after the Jews. Oh, they'll just come after the Muslims. Oh, they'll just come after the refugees. Nope. They're coming after all of us. And I just gave you four examples from the past two years. Our success, our happiness, our ascension, our children, especially our children, are a direct threat to their vision. It engulfs, it swarms, it replaces their vision. It literally darkens it. If given the choice between renting a room to a migrant or a person of color or burning down the house, they will choose to burn down the village. I'll give you two examples. Voting for Donald Trump, Brexit. So how can my vision or my narrative emerge when it must resist this absolutist force of violence and erasure? Right? That's the question. But I still believe, and I'm with Genesis on this, I still believe most people are decent. I believe most people are not absolutists. I, I believe most people are not extremist hate mongers. And despite what you might think with what I just said for the last five minutes, most are not lost and most are not unwilling or unable to still connect. If we look at our prophets and our traditions, especially our religious traditions, there's a lot of beauty and power in our religious traditions, if I may say so. Religion gets a bad rap. I know why it does. And oftentimes it deserves to because people have used it and abused it as a sword instead of a shield. But there's a lot of beauty in it, too. If you look at our prophets, they suffered through this. They suffered much worse. And despite all the crap and all the hate, they chose to expand instead of constrict. Their hearts, their spirit, their narratives expanded. Their vision expanded to accommodate even those whom they disagreed with. They didn't give a false equivalence, all right? It wasn't both siding everything. But they always tried to be decent when the world was indecent. When the world was cruel, they were loving. When the world was hateful, they were generous. When the world was quick to condemn, they were patient. When the world was rejecting, they were embracing. When others built walls, they gave refuge. And that's a narrative and vision of America for the future. That vision should be about expansion. It should move beyond toleration and towards acceptance and, dare I say, celebration of our different narratives and backgrounds. It should be challenging. It should be an invitation. It should be a journey which should be difficult and bumpy, but ultimately rewarding and oh so delicious. It's about allowing small disruption in our lives, moments that take away from the routine or comfort, but allow us to live out our shared values in new ways that add more diverse protagonists to our shared inclusive story, days like today. You guys still with me? Have I bored you? I'm almost done. 
But we've all got work. I like you. Your check's in the mail. (laughs) We have all got work to do. We've all got work to do. But without realizing it, America has always, you know, I think America has always been this multicultural coalition of the willing. I call it like the ethnic Avengers. And if you're a, if you're a DC person, let's just go with Justice League, all right? <laughs> Justice League, ethnic Avengers, whatever. But just some of the side characters haven't gone their solo movies yet, right? Finally, we're getting Black Panther, right? Finally, we're getting Wonder Woman, right? Finally, we're getting Captain Marvel, all right? And I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not a like wide-eyed optimist. I'm a pragmatist. There are significant challenges. People are overwhelmed and exhausted, all right? There's income inequality. There's climate change, which apparently doesn't exist. Uh, uh, apparently, um, uh, cancer is caused by wind turbines. Interesting, good to know. Wind is causing cancer, according to Donald Trump, if you guys have been paying attention. Last time I checked, beautiful clean coal causes cancer, but that just might be me. Um, <laughs> thank you for that, thank you. That was for you, I practiced that one. Beautiful clean coal, I love coal. Uh, There's natural disasters. More than 3,000 American citizens have died in Puerto Rico, received zero funding. That's a natural emergency. Uh, There are hate crimes. There's terrorism. There's white supremacy. There's student debt. There's bad infrastructure. And that's not even like the top 10, okay? So it's easy to tap out. It is easy to be exhausted. But I will say this. Cynicism and apathy, although common, is cheap and lazy. Cynicism and apathy is cheap and lazy. It requires zero work. It requires zero investment. It means being a spectator in life, throwing out booze from the cheap seats. Being a participant in the ring means exposing yourself to pain and to discomfort every single day. Having your hopes shattered every single day. Having people betray you every single day. Having allies turn on you every single day. But it also means you're in the ring and you're helping push the ball forward. And now you will say, bro, who am I? I don't write for the New York Times. I don't, I don't, I don't wear makeup on TV like you and get on CNN. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not Reverend Jackie Lewis. I can't dance like her. I can't sing like her. I can't preach like her. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just a person who just walked in this church. I'm nobody, right? A lot of people think that. I'm nobody. I'm one person out of eight billion people on this earth, seven billion people on this earth. What difference can I make? I am a nobody. My story, even if I share it, who cares? Well, reflect on this. Every city is basically a community composed of individuals. The ocean is composed of a multitude of drops of waters, right? So first, have hope. There's a great saying of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, which I will share, I'll uh, just paraphrase. And it's shared in, in, in Christianity and also in Judaism. He said, even if you see the day of judgment coming around the corner, plant a seed. Even if you see the day of judgment coming around the corner, plant a seed. And for many of us, we've already seen the four horsemen, and one of them is orange with tiny fingers. But still plant the seed. Have hope even though it's painful. And after having hope and investing in hope, I recommend three small actions. Number one, having awareness. Number two, making an intention. And number three, action. Be aware. Open your eyes. Listen, see what's happening around you. Awareness. Most of us sleepwalk through life and then we die. Because it's easier that way. It's our soma. Be aware. Number two, make the intention. Make the intention. Intention is powerful. If you ever like study Islam, it's all about the intention. Intention is the seed of all actions, right? 
Only God knows our intentions and we know our intentions. But making an intention, even writing it down, is so powerful. It's declaring it. It's like it's making a commitment. It's getting it from your mind to your mouth on pen and paper, right? Make the intention to contribute a small positive footprint in your local community that can resonate and create a powerful ripple effect. Different people united around shared values to uplift all, much like today. All right, Genesis gave a few uh, examples. I'll give you, give, you, give you a few examples. Individual actions. Muslim man dropped. Guess what happened on a weekend on, through social media without any direct leadership? A few people took signs and said welcome to airports. You guys remember that? Within an hour, became mainstream, national, every airport in America. My friends in Muslim-majority countries were like, is this America or is, is, is Trump's vision of America the real America? I was like, no, no, this is America. This is the majority, right? Individuals without power all decided to do the right thing. Support DACA kids. A Facebook post. A tweet. If you're in a conversation, just be like, you know, I don't think they're rapists and criminals. I think they're just human beings who did the right thing and want a shot at the American dream. You know, that small disruption changes people's perspectives. Interfaith, but not this kumbaya hummus nonsense, right? Like challenge each other, go into each other's spaces. Yeah, hummus is fine. We all love hummus. I love hummus. You love hummus. Who doesn't like hummus? But aren't you guys tired of like these hummus conversations? I like hummus. You like hummus. We all like hummus. Let's never talk about Israel or Palestine. Let's never talk about, uh, you know, uh, pro-choice or abortion. Let's never talk about gay marriage. I like hummus. Hummus? Hummus? Let's do hummus. 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 No. Do real interfaith. Call each other up. Say, I'm a Jew. I want to go talk to Muslims at the mosque. Let's have uncomfortable conversations. I'm a Christian. I want to go talk to someone else. Let's have uncomfortable conversations. Unite to help over shared values. The homeless need our help. Climate needs our help. The streets need our help. Schools need our help, right? Media need voices and representatives. I work in the media. Guess what? We don't know sometimes. It's your job to call up and say, hey, when's the last time you talked to a progressive voice of faith about the 2020 elections? I'm here. Run for office. If you don't want to run for office, damn it, vote. 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 Too many people have died for you not to vote. And also, if you're bawling and killing it, use your money. Politicians, use that as a carrot. Like, you want my vote? You want my community? Gonna have to earn it. Sorry, I had to become a slick son of immigrant businessman at that, at that moment. But that's how America works. I'm finishing up. I have two minutes? I got two minutes. In your home, are you guys bored? All right, I like that. In your home, in your community, at work, be the vision of America you want this country to become through your daily actions. At the end of the day, that's the only thing we can control. That's the only thing we can control. And one quick story, because I'm not a kumbaya type of guy. But after the election, I told uh, you know, my agent, I said, send me to the Rust Belt. That's all, it's, I just want to go to the Rust Belt. Like, I want to be the darkest thing in the Rust Belt. <laughs> don't send me to New York anymore. Don't send me to California. Send me to, like, Michigan. Send me to Ohio. Send me to, like, Pennsylvania. Send me to Trump country. So I go, all right, if you want to go. So I went, and I gave talks right after the election like, for a year just in the Rust Belt. And I was talking to a college in Ohio. There was one gentleman who came up to me. And he's like a middle-aged white guy. He said, I'm a middle-aged white guy, born and raised in the Rust Belt, rural, rural Ohio. And let me just tell you, I'm with you, man. But guess what? Growing up, I swear to God, he said this, I never met a person of color. 
I did not talk to a person of color until I went to college. It was when I went to college and actually started engaging with people of color and becoming friends with them, it expanded my horizons. And I've been working on myself, and I'm trying to raise my kids this way, but thank you for not giving up on us. And, you know, there's a lot of people like us, but look, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. And like I said before, it's exhausting. I know it's exhausting, but it's worth it. Because what other choice do we have? And our prophets went through this, and they went through much worse, right? And you have to tell your story, especially as your story is being deliberately erased by some violent forces. We have to emerge as the protagonist of our own narrative and share it with the world, and we have to help each other share our narratives, share in our joys, share in our pain, share in our challenges, share in our happiness. You know, I think it's okay to be happy sometimes. Our communities need joy and laughter and family and food and dancing. We need this. It's like it's fuel for our spirits because you can't just resist all the time. It wears down on you. You also have to expand. And sometimes you expand through laughter and dancing and medicine and joy and, and then soul. The drumbeat of the soul. Joy. And I'll finish this way with my kids. Look, uh, I'm worried about the future. I am. And as who here is a parent? So I think about this. Okay, I think about this. I think, what's my role as a parent, right? I'm 38 now. I think about your life, where life wanted to go, where, where it should have been. And I think, okay, I'm a parent. I got two babies. And I think, is my role Hodor? in honor of Game of Thrones. Hodor, for those of you who don't know, is this giant whose entire sole purpose in life is to hold the door. Literally, for those of you who have seen Game of Thrones who haven't, his entire purpose in life is to hold the door and sacrifice his body to keep the demons at bay just so the characters can escape. So I'm like, is that my role as a parent? Am I Hodor? Do I just hold the door to keep the demons at bay so my kids have like five minutes head start? Am I a janitor? is my job to clean up all this crap that I both inherited and my generation, let's be honest, was responsible for? Or can I be a gardener, plant the seeds? Maybe I won't enjoy the shade or the fruits, but maybe my kids can, you know? And I think about it, I think it's all of the above. It's all of the above. And for me and my wife, the decision to be the gardener was to have babies. That was my audacious act of hope, right? I said, I'm going to have babies. That's what I'm going to I'm going to invest in the future and have babies, which to many people, their vision is not of hope, but that's a vision of erasure, extinction, and doom, especially my babies. And when it came to naming my babies, I swear to God, this is a, con this is a conversation happening in 2019 America. It should give you like, the chills. A lot of my friends born and raised in this country are like, maybe we should give our children American mainstream names so they fit in, which is... Think about, think about what happens to you when you have to kind of have this conversation. My, my, my child is a Muslim or a person of color, and instead of calling him Adam, I'll call him Adam because the mainstream will allow him to blend in, and he won't have to take that much crap. These are the conversations that are happening with my friends who were born and raised in this country. But I made a decision, and this was my prayer, to name my son Ibrahim. Ibrahim is Arabic for Abraham, right? And it's not for the reason that you might think, it's because there's a beautiful verse in the Quran where God commands the fire, O fire, be cool for Abraham. You guys know that story in the Bible. And so my prayer was, and the reason why I named my son Abraham, was my prayer is, may the fires of this world be cooled by and for Abraham and his generation. And then my daughter came out, Nuseba, and the reason why we named her Nuseba is because Nuseba in Islamic history is like this warrior princess. 
Nuseba was the woman who, when it came to battle and the men were like running away, she's the one who took the sword and defended the prophet. And she got like 12 gashes. She was the one, when she read the verses, she goes, how come all the verses are addressed to men? And then she went and asked the prophet directly. And two days later, the verse came, oh, men and women. She's the one who, uh, when it came to giving allegiance to the prophet, she didn't want to give allegiance to a representative of the prophet. She goes, no, 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 I want to give allegiance to the prophet himself. And the prophet accepted. So I said, I don't need a damsel in distress. I need a warrior princess. And that was my Nuseba. So my, my last vision for my children is the following. My, for all of our children. This is my vision. I'll end on this. And I'm going to actually end on time. Uh, who would have thought? Is my hope and my dream for my kids. My son's about to turn five. My daughter's about to turn three. They're really smart. They're really cute. They look just like their mother. Thank God. Uh, I'm going to tell them that the American narrative belongs to you. You can and will be, inshallah, the protagonist of the American narrative. You can be anything you want to be. And I'm going to tell them, you go get the appetizer. You go get the cheeses I can't pronounce. You go eat the olives and the dates. You go for the main course. You go for the dessert. You go for the chai. You go for everything. You go for everything. And inshallah, once you earn your seat at the table, you bring in our lamb biryani and place it next to the meatloaf and the dry turkey and the enchiladas. And your job isn't finished yet. Your job, once you make it, inshallah, all of our kids make it, is to then look behind you and see the kids who haven't made it, extend your hand, and bring them to the table so all of our kids can eat the tasty American dream. Thank you for your time. Sit, 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 sit. Sit, sit. I'm South Asian, we don't do well with applause. I have to apologize for apologizing. That's, that's the South Asian way. We are so lucky now that we get to have a conversation with Wash. Um, and we're gonna, rather than queue up and stand up, we're gonna Scan the room, try to get some diverse kinds of voices and, you know, faces talking to watch. Does that sound okay? And we've got, um, we've got some great time, because yes, you ended on time, lovely man that you are. And we might even have time for a little bit of turn and talk, okay? Sure. So let's start with watch, and I want to see your hand if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment. Okay. Wait, guys, can I say something? Really a question. I know we are like all prolific speakers, but not like the preamble and, you know, this morning I had oatmeal. But just go right at the question. Okay? In the beginning. Yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, oh, my name's Carla Gates. Um, Hello, Carla. Hi. Um, so my question was, I didn't know if you had heard of the ideas from the book Emergent Strategy because you, and if you have, I wanted your thoughts on that. They talk about um, transforming yourself to transform the world, and they talk about creating what you want on a small scale to create on a larger scale. It sounded like there was resonance there. I, uh, Mackie Alston, our good friend from Auburn, actually sent me the book, and he said, read this. Uh, so if, if I did say anything uh, which resonates from there, it's uh, because uh, the author is a genius, and I just happen to be lucky. But the, 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 the strength of the book and what you just articulated is working on the self and connecting the story of the self to the, to the story of the community. It's me, me, us, now. 
It's the sim most simplistic way, right? Me, my story, my narrative, in its honesty and in its authenticity, owning it, the warts, the, the glory, the dreams, the hopes, the pain, the frustrations, and being able to articulate that story, but then connecting that story, that very personal, specific, descriptive story, to a more universal story, right? And oftentimes they say the universal is found in the specific. And the problem, especially with many of us, people of color, uh, minorities, if that's the word you wanna use, is we've been taught, uh, subtly and unsubtly, that our stories don't matter, that we have to hide the mirch and the masala, that we have to make it mainstream, that we have to make it palatable, and so we take away all, we voluntarily take away all the richness from our narratives to make it palatable. And then what do you get? You don't get a tasty story, you get something that's just so bland and boring, which is not honest and does not resonate, right? What I have seen from, I can only speak from my personal experience, is that when I lean in hard and just tell you my story and talk about the merch and the masala and the husky pants and the ESL and like, oh, I was also an ESL student, uh, and the Pakistani immigrants, the specificity of my story, the universal is found through that specificity. And it doesn't matter if I'm in New York City or if I'm in uh, Ohio or if I'm in Malaysia or in Indonesia, people resonate with that. It's honest. And they connect to different things. Some people come up to me like, man, husky pants, that was me. Left-handed, that was me. Uh, only kid, that was me. Like, my parents were also immigrants. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's things in, there's like parts of your story that really connect. And I think the second step then is not just, just to be a narcissist and try to get as many Twitter followers as you can, like be me, me, me. It's then how do you connect your personal narrative and journey and story to the challenges, the hopes of your community? And you get to choose your community, right? Who is your community? Who, who, what, what community do you belong to? Many of us are still searching for community. So how can my voice, how can I amplify, amplify my voice, but as my voice is being amplified, how am I amplifying a community voice? And how can I then leverage this community towards positive action in a moment of urgency and crisis. Yeah. And the final thing I'll say is, this sounds like, oh, pie in the sky, but, but, Obama did this very deliberately. Very deliberately. If you follow the 2008 model, the whole me, us, now model, uh, kind of perfected by uh, the Harvard professor's name I'm forgetting, uh, Marshall Gantz. It's all about connecting your personal story to the story of America and using it to inspire a moment of change. He did it like almost like surgically he did it. Now I'm not saying you have to follow the Obama model, but what I am saying, it worked for him. It connected, and what he said was, dreams of my father. I am a son, a biracial man, son of a Kenyan Muslim, and a, a white woman born in the Midwest, and I grew up in Hawaii and in Indonesia, and if a guy like me can make it, damn it, maybe even you can. And people are like, I want to invest in that vision of America. Yep. I want to invest in that narrative. And you saw so many Americans, black, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, were like, damn, can Barack Hussein Obama actually become president of the United States of America? What? And then around the world, I could tell you even Muslim-majority countries, they're living not in America, right? They invested in that narrative as well. They're like, ah, the American dream. So you asked me a simple question, I just want to kind of expand it. And, and, and just, again, the power of storytelling and the power in our personal narrative and how we often, people of color and women, I'll include women in this, 51% of the country, self-police ourselves, negate our own self-worth, apologize for existing, and take away all the mirch and the masala and the richness in order to fit in 
to a mainstream that might not ever want us, and that if we appear the way we think they want us, they won't really find us that tasty. That's right. That's beautiful, Wash. I'm taking... I'm taking I'll be um, quicker in my Mickey's, answers. No, no, you don't have to. I'm taking Mickey's question, but then the mic is coming to you, so you don't need to stand up, okay? So I see Mickey. I see... Okay, that's the order. We'll go next. Thank you. Nice to you, Josh. Hi, okay. I'm Mickey Scappe Jones. Um, hey, hey, friends. Um, so I want to talk about white supremacists. Um, when you talked about uh, kind of the, these narratives that are coming from, you know, white supremacists, from organizations, that kind of thing, and that they're seeping into, um, you know, like that Donald Trump is actually, you know, then saying them, that, you know, Steve King is saying them. Right. In your work in the media, like, do people in the media not know that's where they're coming from? Or is that, like, I, I try not to get into conspiracy theories, so I'm like, are they, all, are they just saying, we're just not going to talk about that? Like, how are they not just saying, hey, everybody, this is coming from white supremacist manifestos. This is coming from, yeah. you know, organizations that are trying to push a white supremacist agenda. Right. Or, do, or do they just not know? It's a very good question. So I, I've been very lucky in my career, uh, working in the New York Times, mm -hmm. worked with Hollywood for a bit, you know, uh, lawyer, worked in a think tank, so I've been very lucky that I have been able to peer behind the curtain and meet many of the gatekeepers and wizards in the media, in TV, in broadcasting. And it's still a very white world. I'm often the darkest things in this room. It's like me and a plant. And, like, and the plant's like, hold me. I'm like, I'll hold you. Uh, <laughs> and I could tell you some of my best friends are whites. I love the whites. Thank you, whites, for coming. My favorite whites are the moderate whites. Uh, but if there's no math. It's, it's like they don't sit there and go, ah, yes. Let us collude and never talk about whites. Yes. It's, it's, it's often they've never had to think about it. Yeah, that's, which is, you say, which is worse, right? Which, it's like, huh, Black Panther made a billion dollars? Huh. Like, no, I'm serious. Crazy rich eight people don't mind seeing Asians and speaking? Huh, wow, wow, pho? People eat pho? Wow, is this a new thing? And you're like, he yes. He didn't say that, he yeah. said pho. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah. They were scared right there. All right, uh, or, or boba tea. Do you guys know what boba tea is? He goes, yes, yes, we know boba tea. Yes, we know boba tea. Uh, but point I'm trying to say is, to them it's like, oh my God, this is brand new. And also what I have seen, being lucky, entering into these very privileged spaces, is there is massive discomfort to talk about racism, massive. People who are very well-intentioned don't know how to breach it, they don't want to be politically incorrect, they don't want to be offensive, they don't want to be like, they want to be woke, but not like stepping on people's toes, but at the same time, people get very defensive. And then I've literally like used kids' gloves to talk about white supremacy, that was an Aspen. Kids' gloves, humor, like, this, like everything, and people were still, I could tell a woman, one of the major donors, I lost her after three minutes, lost her got extremely defensive and afterwards just made a sour face and said, well, Obama was elected and we live in a post-racial society and, 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 you know, are you saying that, you know, the people who don't have the merit get it? And you know what I'm saying? It's, it's massive defensive reflexes. So even labeling Donald Trump, I, I was on TV three weeks ago, New Zealand happened, I was like on TV nonstop. And uh, I just said something to us as common sense. I said, Donald Trump is a racist. And literally, people were like, don't, well, John Lee says Donald Trump is a racist. And like, like MSNBC and CNN, they led with it, and like it went viral and stuff. And I'm like, water is wet. Speaking truth. Like, you know, 
but, but, but just think about it. Like, just, I'll give you an example. Look at like, headline news coverage in 2019. Donald Trump was racially charged. Donald Trump had another racial trip-up. Uh, Donald Trump has racial flare-ups. I'm like, what the F is a racial flare-up? Like, <laughs> like, do you get whitewashed from CVS for a racial flare-up? What's a racial flare-up? And so this discomfort to even acknowledge and label is one of the main challenges that we have. And it comes not from this type of, oh, let's not talk about it. It's because of this country's inability to confront its original sin of white supremacy. Because once you confront it, and once you peel behind the curtain, you see how it's seeped into all of our structures. And, 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 and that, and, for, and the last thing I'll say, for many, it's like it's overwhelming, right? It's like they, it's, they can't take it. It's like trauma overwhelms them, like, oh my God, like everything I've been taught is a lie? You mean it's not about merit? Uh, and, and the blacks were like saying the truth the whole time about like, you know, and like the Latinos were like hardworking, what? And they're not criminals. You see what I'm saying? It's total mind F. I'm not going to swear ever in a church, but you know what I mean. And so it's so, f <laughs> she, she can if she wants. Uh, it's her church. But that's why it's so, it's so frustrating. But for people like us in the media, that's why you still have to keep investing in it because once in a while you do get the platform. And then like I did, I did in a much more, last thing I'll say, I did it in a much more sophisticated, tight way. I connected all the dots three weeks ago and literally like Anderson Cooper and, and uh, Don Lemon, all these other people gave me time and you should see their faces. They were like, and they're like, I mean, the dude has a point. Like, like, like what could they say? Because I connected all the dots. And, and this is the last thing I'll say, we don't connect the dots for people, which is why storytelling is so important because we assume everyone knows everything People don't even know about white supremacy. So it sucks going back to the talk. You have to put in the effort. You have to be the walking Wikipedia entry. You have to connect the dots. But if you don't do it, there are other people connecting the dots on the internet. Creating a story that is a lie. And a story supremacy. of hate yep. where you and I are the enemy. So it's worth it to connect the dots, to communicate it, and to call it out. And slowly but surely, it's freaking taking forever, I know. But this if I may say this, and I, tragedies sometimes illuminate the problems that exist right in front of our faces. And so it took the death of 50 people and the manifesto, where he literally calls Donald Trump a, a renewed symbol of white pride who shares a common purpose to people, for people to finally say, oh, maybe there's a problem here. Thank you, Watch. I'm Bob Leventhal. I live in New York now, but I'm from Springfield, Ohio, the heart of Trump country. Welcome. It's certainly a town very much like Hillbilly Elegy, that story. And I want them to hear new stories. But scanning through a book by um, Ishmar Amanji, uh, 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 who speaks on, on the issues of diversity, a recent uh, book, Urshad Manji. I know Urshad. Urshad. Um, she says, we should be concerned when we get into mocking those folks, mm. which we often do when we're in our subgroup. We're only telling our stories to the same crowd, yeah. which is fun to do, um, because the danger is it moves to the very win-lose thing that you describe, where not listening to Democrats or liberals is the win, and it shuts off all the conversation. How do we speak in a way that's more likely to be heard beyond our own echo chamber? It's a very good question. Thank you, Bob. Because um, it's a balance, right? Because if you are... If you are besieged, right, and if you're a community member who literally is under assault, if literally resistance for you is walking through the door, 
Right? That's what people forget sometimes. Like, oh, resist, resist, resist. You're like, dude, I resist every day by, by not being depressed and by smiling and by going to work and coming home and raising my children, right? Like that to me is resistance. And then you want me to do and one, right? Oh, so I'm just, I'm just I'm putting that out there to acknowledge the frustration of so many people who are like, I'm done tapping out. I'm moving forward. You're either in this caravan moving forward or you think that wind turbines cause cancer. Um, I understand where so many people are coming from, right? Because then people accuse me also of saying, Waj, you're being too nice, you're being too tolerant, I don't have time to sit there and explain my self-worth and why I should not be beaten up or killed. Like, that's not my work. I need work. I need them to do some work. You know, I need reciprocity for once. And that, that request is a request that I think has been earned, right? So people feel a lack of reciprocity. So when I go to Ohio, where I have gone, I say, listen, we all have to do work, but I need you to do work too. I said, I don't, I'm tired of always saying or explaining where's the moderate Muslim. You have Google. Like, I'm tired of always explaining to you, I'm, always, I'm tired of always neutralizing myself as a threat to placate you and make you feel comfortable. Woo! Right? Uh, reciprocity. That's why I say it. I said, every good, healthy relationship, anyone in a good marriage? Uh, reciprocity. Uh, I need you to do work and I'll do the work. And then what I say though, and I, like I said this before, I know it's like a broken record, I lean in hard to my religious values and prof prophetic traditions because it's always sucked. It's always sucked. It's always unfair. It like sucks. I'm not welcome, but I have to be welcoming. Uh, I have to smile even though you're saying racist crap against me. I can never show my anger because if I show my anger, I'm a crazy savage. Uh, my anger, it, although justified, is never warranted. If someone else is being angry with the right skin tone, they're telling it like it is and keeping it real and mad as hell and not taking it anymore. Um, it's, but at the same time, the prophets have told me to be the better person. And then by being the better person and working a little bit harder, I'm willing to put my hand out. But you have to be willing to put your hand out and meet me. And if you're not, then after a while, I mean, now I'm just thinking strategically. We have to make peace with the fact we might not win over 25, 30% of this country. Right. It reminds me of 1954, right before Brown versus Board of Education dropped, where everything was great. That, you know, everyone always asks me, when was America great again? And my prediction is if they could really go into the heart of hearts of some of these people, they go 1954, right before Brown versus yeah, Board, I think that's right. which that's ended uh, segregation. Yep. Uh, segregation ended. And it wasn't like, oh, kumbaya, Sydney Poitier, and everything was fine. There was a generation that never came along, right? Never. And there will be a generation that will not come along with us. And so my test for that generation is the following. And this is what I really believe. And I've said this openly. I think there's about 30% of America, 35% of America, especially with right-wing uh, media, that I think we might have lost forever. Because Nixon did not have Fox News or Breitbart. Um, and they literally, like you said, believe in different narratives and different visions. We can't, like, I, you cannot reach them. My test is, even though they're literally for my erasure, can I still have in my heart compassion for them, care about the oil period crisis, care about the infrastructure, give them economic opportunities, make sure the Rust Belt isn't hollowed, and be the better person? That's my test. Amen. Can, I, can I make sure that even though they see my child as a demographic threat, 
I see their, I'll invite their child to my, my kid's barbecue. And even if they, you know, even if they continue on this path, there has to be a point where I say, you know what? I got to move forward with the majority. And that's 70%. But the door is always open for you if you want to walk in. Thank so you, I Raj. hope. I'm Thank sorry you gave me a simple question. It got yeah. me all philosophical. Thank you so much. We've got one question online and one in here. Let's and I'll hear be both of the answers. questions, and we'll have Waz answer. So, what does self-care look like? Oh, that's a very okay. good question. What is self-care for people of color, that's and what's the good. question you have online? Do we have a question online? I do not. Okay, Natalie, we're good. Okay, self-care. I can always self-care for me is uh, I married up. I married hell up. See my wife, you're like, what? My dad says, he goes, don't mess this up. Every week. He goes, uh, I married way up, smarter, better looking, kind, compassionate. Uh, so, and, I, and I, you know, I sound like an old preacher. You marry and have kids. Uh, but having a partner in life who you can really, let me put it this way. I, I tell my friends who are about to get married my definition of a good marriage. You know you're in a good relationship when you come home from work and you're about to open the door and there's an emotion where you can open the door and exhale all your problems and just relax. Sign of a good relationship. Sign of a bad relationship. You come home from work, you're about to open the door, and you go, okay. <laughs> One, two, three, and you enter. Uh, so self-care for me is maintaining and investing in that relationship. Uh, having kids, spending time with the kids, being present with the kids putting away the cell phone, playing with them. Uh, it, it gives me joy. It gives me happiness. Self-care for me means prayer. Uh, I actually do pray. Like, people get shocked. They're like, I thought you were progressive, and you don't drink, and you don't eat pork. And I don't understand you type of Muslims. Like, you know, like most, like, you know people of faith are like carnivores or like uh, vegan. No one can be an omnivore, right? Uh, so I'm a teetotaling, praying, fasting Muslim. Ah, uh, who doesn't have a full beard, right? Uh, and so prayer, there's strength in prayer. There's strength in religious values. Like there's strength in knowing that our prophets went through this. There's strength in knowing that you believe in a loving God. There's strength in knowing that maybe after all this hardship is done and we survive this life, that maybe a creator will embrace us. Um, and then finally, I work out. Like, no, seriously, run, stay healthy because we're in it for the long run. I see a lot of people... You know, I'm so glad you asked this question because there's so many friends of mine who are like in this, in this space. They're stressed, they eat poorly, they drink too much, they're in crappy relationships, they have heart problems, and then they think, you know what, I'm just going to go hard in the paint and I'll tap out. I'm like, no, I need you to live until you're 85. I need to milk as much mileage from you as humanly possible. You dying at 50 does nothing for me. So you live till 85, be happy, take your breaks, read your comic books, watch Game of Thrones, find love, have joy, get off social media sometimes, right? And if people are toxic in your life, get rid of that toxicity. And if anyone is bringing you down and calling you a sellout and you're not meeting their absolute litmus test, it's fine. You know your intentions. God knows your intentions. You'll do more good than bad. Stay with it, stay at it, and stay happy. Sorry, I talked too much. You good? Watch, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for your 
tough truth delivered with such humor. Everyone, give it up for Watch Thank you. Thank you.